I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. In 2008, a young woman is hanging out with friends in the affluent suburbs of Gauteng province in South Africa. A handsome young man sends a note to their table, inviting the pretty women to join him. He's new in town and celebrating his birthday. They enjoy the evening together, taking pictures and posting them to social media. A phone call later in the evening prompts the polite and seemingly harmless young man to invite one of the women to join him on a quick trip to collect his sister from a nearby grocery shop. One of the ladies agrees. It's a decision she will live to regret. My name is Paul Vivian Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind crime on the continent is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. So thank you so much for joining us on our various media pages and for your feedback on the show. We still need you to visit our YouTube page and please do subscribe and please share with your friends. We're available on iTunes and you can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Insta handle is at Profiler Africa and please join the group on Facebook. We're keen to hear your feedback, field your questions and listen to your suggested topics. Remember that we will post content on our social pages that relate to the crimes that we discuss so that you can better engage with the discussion and see what it is that we're talking about. Before we get into the case this week, sexual offenses in South Africa include such crimes as rape, compelled rape, sexual assault, incest, bestiality, statutory rape, and the sexual grooming of children. In 2017-18, in South Africa, a total of 50,108 sexual offenses were recorded by the police, up from 49,660 in 2016-17. The majority of the sexual offenses recorded were rapes. The police recorded 40,035 rapes in 2017-18, up from 39,828 in 2016-17. In previous discussions on the show, we've talked about the fact that the estimate is that one in 20 cases of rape are reported. So we multiply the statistics we see by 20 and we may start to get closer to a real figure. That gets us to the region of 800,000 rapes every year. And that means that potentially one in 62 people in South Africa are raped every single year. What is going on in South Africa, Gerard? Yeah, I mean, it's we've got really crazy rape stats and we're starting to get a full idea of the serial rape statistics um, since we've started processing every single piece of DNA that comes to the forensic laboratory. So massive increase in that. Um, and yeah, why we have such high rates, it's, I think it's really just difficult to even try and fathom what the motivations and reasons are that we do. Where would you put sexual offenses on kind of the scale of social issues that South Africa confronts today? 
I think it's it's a massively relevant one, like domestic violence, etc., and other crimes against predominantly women and children. Um, and definitely, if you look at government policies and even policing strategies, it's high up there. I just, unfortunately, on the ground when it comes to policing, I don't always see that dedication to it um, as much as you see in the policies that there's supposed to be a dedication to it. And I think that's what we find, that victims not feeling that they're going to get proper attention by the police, treated mm. respectfully, the secondary victimization, feeling that the cops aren't, can't do their job properly, which means they're not going to catch the guy. So why do I want to go through this process? Let me know again. And I think those all factor into why the rates are looking not so great. But what mm. causes the, the initial rates? I don't know. Look, I mean, we surely would have to go back into a historical discussion, the disenfranchisement, the disempowerment of South African men, the sep you know, the breaking up of the family historically, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I would assume that the majority of rape in South Africa is not serial. Can we differentiate between what is typical and serial rape? Yeah, I think the more I look into rape, I start, I start to wonder that aren't all rapists serial rapists? I mean, does someone do this once and just never again in their life? You know, whether it's in a family, you know, in a relationship, marital context, a relationship context, you know, if you rape your girlfriend or have forced sex with your girlfriend more than twice, I do think you should be regarded as a serial rapist, although it's not a separate victim, mm. you've raped serially. Um, so even the stats from some very nice studies from the Medical Research Council show when they interviewed families in the Eastern Cape, they are not anonymous service in the sense of that nothing would come of the information given to them. If they if the if, if the interviewee said that they did do one, two, and three, they they wouldn't they wouldn't be used against them and it would be anonymized. And it was quite scary about how many people had raped, how many mm -hmm. men in the study had raped, and how many of the men had raped more than once. The, 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 the rates are quite high. What typically are the motivations for a rape? Hmm. Well, we'd often say it's about power and control. I wouldn't say that it isn't an element of the sexual arousal part of it, of course, yeah. but they, typically we people will say that it's underlying motivated by issues prim primarily of power and control over another person, et cetera, mm. and domination. Because there, there's a lack of control here as well. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it seems that when it comes to serial crime in general, the male ego is very much a factor here. Mm. I mean, typically we've got men, male offenders, whether it's rape, whether it's murder. What are the aspects of the male ego that are that seem that that are problematic? Yeah, well, I think it's just if you look at it, men just are in every country more responsible for violent crime than females are. Yeah, whether that's biology, genetics, a combination of all of the above, patriarchal type of society, the way we raise men mm. to or to boys to be boys and boys to be men. Um, so, I mean, it's just it, men are the violent ones, and that extends into sort of sexual violence. Yeah. How, what kind of, how, how, how do you think we as a society should approach this issue? Sure. I think it's going to take a long time and a lot of dedicated motivation, but I think it starts at the home. Okay. How we raise these little kids to treat people respectfully, treat their mothers respectfully, treat their sisters respectfully, at school to behave appropriately mm. is really the, the best, although it's a long process. Mm. Um, the best way to intervene. To come in later on once people have got the wrong idea about women and how to behave as a man, very difficult to change that if it's going up into a society that supports all of that. So you've got to have to start with grassroots 
is the best chance we have. I'm not saying it's going to necessarily work fantastically, but it's the best chance we have is to raise kids properly. Because, I mean, mm. if you have children, have you raised rapists? No. Why? Maybe because you paid a bit more attention to your kids and were more supportive and loving and caring and expressed and you that may, And you them. gave them very clear boundaries and you, yeah. you instilled a sense of a value system that is yeah. appropriate. Yeah. Let's jump into a case. And I think what we've got today is a really good example of another case, which, and I kind of go... What was this guy thinking? Mm. Gerard, yeah, introduce too. us to this case. How did you become aware of the Hillbrow serial rapist? Mm. Yeah, because this is similar but different in many ways to other serial rapists mm. that we're going to talk about at, at different points. So um, essentially we had uh, Captain Joyce Butelezi, who at the time was based at the friend, uh, uh, Family Violence Sexual Offences Unit here in, in Johannesburg, who attended one of our training courses that we present to detectives for three weeks. We'd come across her on other cases that we'd consulted on with her, and we identified her as a really, really passionate, dedicated, and, and smart detective. Mm -hmm. And we got her on our course, and during the course she mentioned that she had three cases back at her unit that looked very similar in nature, and after the course she's now even more concerned about this case, and she's gonna go back and hit these cases immediately the first day back at the office. And that's kind of what she did. Um, so where were these cases happening? Where, what geography are yeah. we talking here? So essentially, um, the victims were all raped kind of in Hillbrow, Johannesburg, CBD, where there's a lot of CD hotels, etc. Okay. But they were all met in more affluent parts of Johannesburg. Okay. Sometimes near the University of Johannesburg campus, shopping malls, Monte Casino, which is a big sort of casino shopping complex, um, nice restaurants such as News Cafe, kind of upmarkety kind of places that are frequented by by young people and you know who are out for it to celebrate. And is there a commonality between the victims? What is the profile of the victims? Yeah, so many of them were were students, and that's kind kind of he adopted, he got the name the Hillbrow student rapist, the Hillbrow birthday rapist. So many of them were young people in the early twenties, maybe a little bit younger in some cases. Uh, some of them were professionals. One or two of them were lawyers. Uh, worked at cell phone companies. Uh, you know, professional people. But a lot of them were the students, and he would meet them, approach them in this restaurant. So these are young, smart, not the kind of people you would expect to be particularly easily yeah. manipulated, etc. It's not your typical serial rape victim in South Africa, okay. which is the unemployed female. Okay, and we've got Detective Butelezi who has identified and she's she's convinced that there's, there's a pattern going on here. You get involved. After the break, we will reveal the methods of who turns out to be a particularly devious and uh, cruel sexual predator and we'll find out how he nearly slipped through the fingers of investigators tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search profiler africa on youtube and please subscribe remember each episode premieres every thursday at 12 p.m on brand live and please do subscribe to our youtube page we're also available on itunes and you can also follow us on instagram or twitter our handles at profiler africa and join our facebook group please
South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent. And as always, I am joined by Jared Labaskakni, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section. And he is the profiler. So let's talk about his method. So, so what Butalezi picked up in those few dockets she had was that the guy would approach these young ladies either out in the streets or in a restaurant and say, today's my birthday. I'm new in town. I don't know anybody. Won't you come and celebrate my birthday with me and I'll pay for everything. And he was well-dressed, spoke good English, um, was very believable to be an honest, mm -hmm. upstanding member of the, of the community. He would often tell them his name is Zamani, Z-A-M-A-N-I, that he's a graphic designer. I think one or two, he said that he's a lawyer. Okay. Um, and that's kind of what she picked up with the similarities, which are strong similarities in yeah. terms of linkages. And she started to make inquiries amongst her colleagues in the neighboring sexual offenses units and got more dockets where literally that same story was being told. And again, all the ladies said that the suspect had an operation scar down his stomach, Okay. Um, so again, another unique similarity that we're okay. picking up. And as she found more and more dockets. Um, How many cases are we talking about at this stage? At that point, she had three. Then she, um, she found a handful more. In the, but in the end, we went to trial with 20 victims who were raped okay. by this guy. So essentially that they would do, they'd go into the, a nice restaurant and he would say, order whatever you want. It's all on me. Food, mm. drink, you name it. Um, and what he started out doing prior to the rapes is he would do the exact same thing. And at some point he would say, oh, my cell phone's dead. Um, can I just make a phone call from your phone? And the ladies would say, oh yeah, sure, carry on. And then he would start to talk as if he's talking and say, hang on, I can't hear properly, I can't hear properly. And then he would leave the restaurant and turns out not just with that lady's phone, but everybody else's phones or whatever he could take and just leave the ladies behind with the bull. And he would, so that's how his, actually his income was generated from stealing cell phones. He just extended that when it came to the rapes. So we do the same thing, approach them. So did he start was he raping from, from get-go or did he start, or was it just petty crime to we, start? We know in the earlier bits it was petty crime. Okay. Yeah. So then, of course, what he would do at some point when he started to want to go into rape and he would say to one of the ladies, listen, um, I've got to go pick up my sister. That phone call I got now was my sister. Um, don't you want to, you guys stay here, keep the table, continue ordering what you want. Young lady, you come with me. And of course, mm. he'd been chatting to them now for an hour Absolutely. or so. Come with me, we'll take a meter taxi into town, go get her and come back. And of course... He, everybody's thinking this is a great guy. I mean, I'd love to date this guy. And a lot of them thought this would be a perfect boyfriend for me. I am pretty sure that women listening to women around South Africa and around the world listening to the podcast right now will identify this kind of scenario. Mm. And it's the kind of, kind of scenario that you're not to blame if you, if, mm. if, if you feel at ease in this kind of situation, if you're, if you're put at ease in this kind of situation. And, and he was different because he really was, he was very intelligent. Okay. And I said, well-spoken. And I mean, we were chatting We'll get to this a bit later, you know, after we'd arrested him. And he was telling me how he was reading, you know, um, Jack Kerouac or some other well-known sort of American lit literary icons, okay. you know, and books that he liked to read, which were books that I liked to read. And yeah. when I spoke to him, he could have gone to the same school that I went to. Yeah. That's how, you know, intelligent and, and, and well-spoken he came across and believable he came across. So yeah. he would get them into the, into the taxi. They'd pull up outside some dingy hotel and you'd say, just wait here. I'm going to go up and get my sister. Hang on in the car. So of course, yeah. again, feel very safe. He'd come back two minutes later and what he would be doing then is he would be booking out a room. Okay. Then he'd come down and says, look, my sister, typical woman, she's not ready. I don't want to keep this taxi meter running. Come up with me and we'll just catch another one and go back. Sounds again believable. 
mm. goes up and then once he's in that room with them, he then starts to engage in his sort of very sadistic and horrible and overnight that he would rape these ladies and then next morning just disappear. Let's go back to when he's at the restaurant because there's a piece of evidence, there's, there's something that emerges, which to me, I mean, you talk about him being well-read, intelligent, but he's taking selfies and posting them on mm. social media with the girls. Yeah, in one of the cases where he didn't rape the girls, but he did steal their phones, and these were lawyers and you know, you know, yeah. professional people. You know, you sometimes get in these places where you'll get a, 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 an official photographer who'll walk around and say, "Would you guys like a picture of your table?" And he even posed with one of those victims, and they—that's one of the photographs that they were eventually able to give to the police at some point. Mm. But in the in the one that kind of led to the breakthrough. It was his last case where he met girls now in Pretoria, which was very different to his normal hunting ground. Okay. At a restaurant, they were already there and the same thing, it's my birthday, I don't know anybody. And he sat with these five girls, again, for a long period of time. And one of the other girls was taking pictures for him. And it wasn't that he didn't know that their picture was being taken, because you can see he's posing with them. Yeah. If you look at the photographs, looking at the camera, and those became crucial when we decided to have a media blitz to, mm. to release those pictures. A, a date rape has become, a, you know, a, has become a, a big thing. I know, especially in Joburg, I know a couple of young women who've, I know a good friend of mine who got very close to, to having a drink spiked and was actually stopped by her friend while being led out of the venue by a strange man. I mean, this is one of those things that if you want to commit a rape in, in Joburg, say, you know that you can spike somebody's drink you can get them out of a venue relatively easy and they'll have no memory i mean it just seems so odd that he wouldn't employ that kind of method yeah and so brazen i mean if anything these places also have cctv footage you yeah know, in, the, in, the, in the on the general premises and not in the in thing so of course the other ladies would then be left behind and they eventually realize the guy's not coming back our friend we can't yeah. get hold of her on the phone the manager would say, well, you guys got to pay. And they wouldn't often have any sympathy that these ladies would say, but no, it was him. And that, of course, got those young ladies into a lot of trouble. What you have in this case is an incredible yin and yang as well. So you have at face value an intelligent, young, upwardly mobile man. But when the door to that hotel room in Hillbrow closes, a whole different side Absolutely. emerges. And there were aspects of this case which... which weren't typical when it comes yeah. to rape cases. He was probably, you know, we don't, you often hear about sexual sadism where the person gets pleasure, sexual pleasure by hurting other people and humiliating them in psychological fear and terror. We don't often actually get that. You know, we get some brutal rapes, but it wasn't as necessarily that the person had a sadistic motive for the brutality. It was maybe an outpouring of anger yeah. in the moment or cooperation, anger, etc. But here he would, you know, assault them once they're inside, tie them to a chair, say he's going to make a sex tape, put it on the internet. Um, spit on the victims, burn them with uh, cigarettes, put glass on the floor so that they couldn't get away. So very, and again, just keeping them overnight, which is a very long period of terror that these young ladies would have had to live through. Um, and that was really, really something that stood out about him in the way he actually engaged in his sexual acts with these, he's a sexual sadist. How would he leave the scene? Uh, basically the next morning he would say, I'm going out, I'm just gonna get some money, I'm gonna go buy food, you better stay here because I know people in the corridor and if you leave, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a lot of them would then wait and wait and wait and eventually realize okay, he's not coming back and then leave. You've got a sadistic, a, a, a sadistic rapist here. Is, he was caught before his crimes escalated. Hmm. What are your feelings on whether or not he could have potentially escalated, his crimes could have potentially escalated to murder? It's always a risk and a possibility. Um, the sexual, sexually sadistic element 
he might not necessarily have intended to kill them, but if he increased his sexually sadistic behavior, he could have, as a result of that behavior, ended up killing them, whether he thought he was going to murder them or not. Mm. So that's always a risk concern um, that this can get worse. We always have to keep that in mind. And like I said, we don't get lots of sexual sadists in our series. Was there a progression of violence in these cases? I can't recall specifically. I think from from pretty much the first few victims, he was engaging in Already, sadistic okay. behavior. Um, I don't recall. I think there was a picking up of pace of the number of victims, if I recall correctly, in the time that we got involved. Mm. So Joyce came to see us on the 26th of October after a course. She'd gone back, gathered these dockets, gathered the other ones, and then came to see us on the, on the 26th of October. And I think by... Early November, I think it was, we'd arrested him. Do you get a sense? I mean, he had a girlfriend. Yeah. Do you get a sense that he, from the girlfriend or, and maybe not in this case, maybe other cases can kind of enlighten enlighten us on this as well. Um, do you get a sense that there's a manner in which his, he engages sexually with his girlfriend? Mm. Um, d- d- would, he typ- would, he, would he have pretty typical sex with his girlfriend? Did she report that there was any kind of violent behavior or sadistic yeah. type behavior in his, sex- in his, in his sexual behavior? I did, I did interview her the night we ended up arresting this guy. And um, she don't, I don't recall her reporting any sadistic behavior. So okay. it is sometimes common that they'll try out some things that their partner will let them do in their, okay. in their normal relationship and then go just the further step with the, with the other partners. Yeah. So he might like to tie up his victims. Um, he might have tried to tie up his girlfriend or wife. Yeah. Uh, and depending on how much she would allow, she, he will do. But I don't recall her ever commenting on any okay. any overtly violent. Again, at that time when I interviewed him, we were trying to locate him. So also yeah. my focus would be more on, we need your cooperation. You have to tell us where he is. Okay, I see. So you've been brought into the case. Butelezi is convinced there's something going on. You employ the media. Now, this isn't something yeah. that always happens. It's a calculated decision to get the media involved because there are pros and cons. Yeah. Talk to us about it. Yeah. So, you know, the sad thing is, this is not, not, not uncommon, is that Captain Butelezi was struggling to get her commanders to approve the formation of a task team. Okay. You know, there we had the attitude of, well, you know, we don't know who this person is. Um, different cases are with different people. They must just carry on and investigate them. Um, so we kind of, in a way, her, myself, and one or two other people decided, well, well we're going to do what we think is necessary. Okay. Um, so that was on the 26th of October. She came to see us. The 3rd of November, 2010, he strikes again. Um, but this time, as I mentioned, it was in Pretoria, approaches these five girls. They take pictures of him. He then takes one of them all the way from Pretoria to, to Hillbrow okay. to commit the rape. So again, that's a 40, 50 kilometer yeah. travel uh, that he engaged with her. And we decided, you know what, we've got to take drastic steps now. We've got photographs of this guy. Um, you know, we're not getting permission to form a task team. Um, we're going to have to carry on on our own. And essentially what we decided to do then was we're going to have a media blitz. Now, what we should have done according, according to procedure is done this through the SAPS media office. Okay. We didn't think that it was going to be done the way we wanted it to do. So we kind of bent the rules but we thought that if, we were, if we're successful, hopefully nobody's going to take us to task afterwards. So we said, let's take these photographs. I knew enough journalists from my time in the police that I said, look, I, I went to one at ETV, Vanessa Governor, and I said, I want you to do a story. And I want it to be on, for example, the night's news. I then went to, I think it was 702, which is a local radio station. And I said, I want you guys to run the story. And then the following day, we wanted print media to launch it. So in that, in that order, not that, you know, one day it's this, five days later is it that we want a media blitz about this guy. Mm. Uh, and the newspaper we, we targeted was Daily Sun, okay. which is wow. has such a wide readership, you know. So you that's what You want to get word out there, Daily Sun is the place to do exactly. it. Exactly. Sure. So, uh, and they were great. So, uh, you know, literally 
three or four days later, we've organized this. It goes out on the 8th of November, and already that night, um, someone he, where the suspect was staying, he rented a room in a house. So obviously, there's other people renting the rooms, and one of them sees it on TV and thinks, my God, but this is, this is, he, this, is this guy who stays with us. She went to a little satellite police station, and they said, no, we can't help you. You must go to the main police station, mm. and which, which she didn't. Um, so as would be his expected, his overconfidence really was his undoing. Yeah. So already that night, people are recognizing him. Yeah. Following day, it's in the print media, and um, we start to get phone calls. Because we put my, my phone number, my cell number, and Joyce put Leslie's number as the two contact people. The people would have a choice, male, female, white, black, whatever you want to break it up. And um, we both started getting phone calls. You know, some of it was nonsense information like, oh, you're looking for Chunky. Oh, that doesn't help us. Where's Chunky? Yeah. What's his real name? Where does he stay? Where does he work? Yeah, of course. But then I got a call saying, listen, I know where this guy lives because he often comes into our shop and, you know, I know where he stays. And I then said to Butelez, okay, you go interview this guy, get the information. And a, a, and a venue gets pointed out to us. Okay, so... So, so we gather the team together. I was ridiculously sick at the time. I had probably the worst flu I've ever had. We'd already been called in by the um, by the general who was like, How, who gave you permission to do this? This at the, And very unhappy with us. But we kind of thought, we'll take that one on the chin. It's fine. Okay. And um, I'm rushing from Pretoria in my car, blue lights flashing. The highway patrol pulls me over. Fever you know, Who are you? Where, where, <laughs> why are you driving a civilian car with blue lights flashing? We have an order to pull over everybody. <laughs> okay. So I'm like thinking, this is just, I mean, I'm on my way to try and arrest someone. Yeah. And I'm getting pulled over by traffic cops. Okay. And that's the little things that just happen along the way. So we meet up. We go to the nearby area. We, it's really just four of us. You know, it's like mm. me and Vitalese in one car and two other people in another car. And the, the, the informer takes them and drives past the house and actually sees the suspect at the entrance gate to the house. They drive, continue to drive past, they come back and they say, right now, we've got to go now, we've got to hit the house now. So we kind of all go and he's gone. So we thought, did he see us? Did he think the mm. car was a policeman? Did he get suspicious? Later it turns out he'd been riding in a taxi on the way home and the lady next to him was looking at the Daily Sun, looking at this picture of him, then looking at him, <laughs> looking back at the picture of him and going, uh-huh. So you'd seen him in the car in the moment that he was buggering off. And so he fled that taxi and was running home. Obviously, it turns out later to flee to down to okay. Hotel province. And so he hadn't even seen us uh, the car. Okay. We find that out afterwards because you asked him why. Which he, what gives happened. you a sense of yeah. how close you can come in yeah. these cases. Wow. So we then hit the house and he's gone. Sure. Um, we asked the people there, who does he stay with? And they said, no, he stays with his girlfriend. Where's she? She's gone down to Komashu in KwaZulu-Natal to visit family with their 15-month-old baby. We search the house. We get an electricity bill for a house in Komashu. So the next day, again, I'm deadly sick. The general says, who's going to go down Komashu? I said, well, Captain Butelezi and, you know, Captain so-and-so uh, will go. And he said, no, 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 Rabaskachni, you started this. You're going to go with them. I said, okay, General, I'll okay. go with them. So again, four of us jump in. You've got to take one for the team. General. Yeah, you know, we had to get financial. And again, a little frustrations. We had to get financial authorization. So we couldn't leave that night. We had to leave the next day. To but get again, what I love is the fact that there's this theme that's coming up of just thinking on your feet, being willing to play with the rules and be creative in the moment about Absolutely. how you approach these cases yeah. because they are such moving moving entities these cases yeah. so basically two days later joyce myself captain zwane and constable Simon jump in my car and we drive down to kwazulu natal we go to that address um that we found on that receipt um the, the electricity bill and we get a, we get his girlfriend and she says but you know he i saw this also i saw the stuff in the newspaper and he said 
though the cops want to, they contacted him already and they just wanted to speak to him because they think they know who he knows who the suspect is. And okay. she believed him. I suppose, you know, you don't expect your husband's a serial, your boyfriend's well, a serial rapist. Especially if you, yeah, if you have a sexual relationship with him and yeah. you've not really identified And he's done these, these horrible, yeah. horrific acts. Yeah. So we convinced her that, no, he is our suspect. We've got DNA. We've got everything. We've got photographs. Okay. And she thankfully cooperates in pointing out where, because he wasn't staying with her, but he was staying nearby. So we ask her to point out where he's staying. She cooperates. Sorry. and But of course, we want to get a bit of backup because we're down from Gauteng. That's yeah. you know, five, 600 kilometers. It's four of us. We go to the police station. We don't want to tell them exactly who it is that we're looking for. We just say it's an armed robber. Nah, we're busy. We're not interested. I think eventually we managed to get one or two people from the dog unit to assist us. Okay. And one or two of the people tagged along from the police station. So okay. we... Grab the house. I had the unfortunate to go to the back of the house, always thinking the suspect's going to flee out the back. Yeah. And he walks out the front door as he is, and Captain Zwanip sort of puts him on the ground, tells him he's under arrest. Okay. So now, of course, we confirm it's him. He doesn't look like him. You know, people don't always look like the pictures, yeah, but yeah, yeah. we check the scar on his stomach. We know okay. it's our man. Um, and then one of the people who are with us who tagged along in this process, we find out is busy bundling him, the suspect, into the boot of his car. And we're like, whoa. What's going on here? Give us our suspect back and put him back in the car. And then I kind of said to him, look, don't worry. Once these idiots are gone, it was myself, Captain Butolesi over there, Simon, um, Captain Zwan, we're, we're the ones from Pretoria that came down looking for Joburg coming to look for you. Don't worry, we're not going to let these cops. And that in a way was true. We're not going to let these cops take him. Mm. And of course, he was as grateful as hell that he thought they were going to take him off and shoot him. Well, how do you interpret that? Um, what the other cops? Were yes, doing? the other cops. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know whether if they would have shot him, but they might have said, "Hey, you know, give us, you know, thousand rand, and we'll let you go." Or I don't know what on earth was really going through their minds. Sure. But it definitely was not standard procedure to bundle someone into the boot of your vehicle in any in any circumstances. Certain things pop up in these conversations, which is so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one o'clock in the morning now. We're tired. We're not going to drive back straight to Pretoria. So. We book him into the the, uh, uh, the Cato Manor police station cells for the night. We get two hours sleep. We're back there early the following morning. And he had a, sco a, a wound on his stomach. Okay. She says to us, oh, no, 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 I fell. And maybe it was during the arrest that this old wound opened up. And so, okay, well, we've got to take him to the hospital to treat that because you can't travel with a prisoner who's injured. Sure. He's taken to the hospital and the doctor calls us aside and says, that's self-inflicted. And he okay. later admitted that he actually had considered trying to commit suicide in the police cells. And that was his attempt. Okay. So Jared, let's stop there. We're going to take a little break. Hilbrand's serial rapist has been caught. And so seemingly he's been stopped. But unknown to police, he's soon to slip through their clutches a little bit once yeah. again. And we'll tell you about that in the next segment of the show. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes and you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa is our handle and join our Facebook group. We'll be back. South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. So, how are you feeling at this stage? 
How's the flu well, at this, flu at this is moment, still Jared? bad. I'm tired. I was just my car, so I was driving down and back. Of course, you know, you know, when anybody oh, else please, is driving. Daddy, your won't car. you take us down to Durban? Um, we're you happy to get a rapist. Yeah, it's it's mixed feelings, of course. Everything going through your head, and of course, now everybody's phone. Now it's in the, gets into the media, so I've got hundreds of journalists' yeah. phone. I've got, I've got you know generals phoning, and and we getting this guy back, and we're driving back towards Pretoria. Is the media interest part of maybe a bit of a double-edged sword where mm. it helps to get them involved, but now, you know, once, <laughs> you know, at a certain point in the case, it can become yeah. a, a, an issue? Yeah. So what I did, I mean, obviously the journalist that helped us, I sent them a message one o'clock in the morning, we've arrested the suspect. Sure. And that is, of course, sent off the, you know, it's on 702, et cetera. Now all the other media places, people are phoning me, et cetera. And, mm. you know, you can't give too much information, but you do want to just acknowledge the people that helped you. Um, so we're driving back and I think it must've been a weird scenario. There's four of us in the car with our suspect, the fifth person, he's handcuffed. We, you know, we have to stop at some point for food. So we stop at one of these big gas stations along the highway and with his handcuffs and feet, I think he had leg irons, we shuffle in and, Hey, do you want a burger? And there we are sitting eating. And I just think the people looking at us like, huh, <laughs> what's, what is this? We get him back that late that night to, to put him in the high security, um, section of the, um, Joburg Central uh, Prison. I mean, then there's like weird things with, you know, policemen all coming and wanting to take photographs with him. You know, and he complained about this and everybody's taking pictures of me and you. Um, little things that you just... It's the weirdest road trip movie I've ever heard, Jack. Yeah. It's as simple as that, okay? Yeah. Dude, where's my serial rapist? Yeah, and you know, we're chatting to him and there's no animosity yeah. between us and him. You know, we've done our job. He's, you know, carrying on okay. and he's grateful we didn't shoot him or, For sure. you know, rescued him from these other cops who were going to do goodness knows what with him. And he eventually wrote a nice thank you letter to how, you know, thanks for treating me so decently, okay. et cetera, et cetera. And just getting to know a little bit more about the guy. He went to Pinetown Boys High. Let's talk about him. You know, um, so again, he he didn't, he went to Pinetown Boys High, which is a good school. Yeah. Um, he never, I think he never had the opportunities to use his talents and knowledge and skill because he was really smart. And yeah. I think if he really put his efforts into doing something positive, he would have been fantastically successful. If anything, yeah. he was a good bullshitter. You know? yeah. um, and everybody who spoke to who he said he was a lawyer to and, and who were lawyers believed him, mm -hmm. you know, were some of these victims that he was mm -hmm. chatting to. You know, if they said he was an architect, they, everybody believed him. So it's just really sad that he chose this way of, of expressing himself in his life. Interestingly, in this case, there was an incident where he nearly mm. slipped through the fingers of, of, yeah. of, of you guys. How did that happen? Yeah. So eventually the trial starts, and I think it started in 2011 or 2012. So fairly quick for a big trial like this after his arrest. Mm. We arrested him, as I said, in November 2010. Um, I mean, you've got lots of victims here. You've got a, these young ladies, some of them were writing, you know, as I said, somewhat as young as 18. And Joyce Butelese was fantastic in providing that human compassion towards all of these victims. She arranged at one point that they meet so they could see that I'm not the only one, um, you know, other normal girls who were victim of this guy. She arranged psycho psychological counseling for them and really put that effort into supporting these victims, which you often just don't get in police cases, yeah. even sexual offenses cases, that dedication by a policewoman, not just for the case, but for the, vic the victim themselves. Mm. So we got a trial with 20, um, all who had been raped. Eight other dockets were opened where women had been tricked out of their cell phones in the same modus operandi that I explained now. But um, a lot of those didn't want to go to trial because they just felt embarrassed that they'd been duped. And like I said, some were professionals. They didn't want to, you know, go to be a part of this trial, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So we got a trial. He ends up having firing three of his own lawyers. 
Uh, okay. He ends up representing himself, which is always a hassle for any trial. We never want people representing themselves. Mm. It just frustrates the process. They don't understand the legal concepts. They usually use that to abuse the victims further mm. in their cross-examination. And that's traumatic for the victim to be cross-examined by the very same guy who raped you. Um, so we got a trial with that. But we have a, obviously it's set down for a couple of weeks. Then there's a pause. Then it's set down for more weeks. But the 1st of March 2012, it was supposed to continue. And he doesn't arrive at court. Police van arrives, he's not there. Mm -hmm. So Joyce makes inquiries, and it turns out that he'd been released by Correctional Services in February, in other words, the previous month. Okay, Correctional Services, SAPs, you guys all work for the same people. Yeah. What's going on? Where's the, where's the communication breakdown yeah. here, Gerald? So what had happened was that after he'd been arrested, of course, once he's back, he arrested, he's back on the computer system, he had had a reckless and negligent driving from long ago case that he was wanted for. Okay. So, of course, now that detective, I think it was Kempton Park Police Station, gets like a little warning on the system that his suspect is back in custody. He tootles off to the prison where he's being kept and says, well, I've got to take you to court now for this reckless and negligent driving case. Um, yay, I found you. He goes to court with him. He pleads guilty. He receives a two-month sentence. But now this is the crucial part. He was previously in the awaiting trial section, which is what happens when you're busy with your trial. Now he's a convicted offender, so they put him in the convicted prisoner section for this two-month sentence. He serves it, and instead of at the end of it going back to the awaiting trial section, correctional services says, thank you, you've served your two-month sentence, goodbye. What and a great a day. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> the trauma for, for his victims, yeah. um, the hysterics. And I mean, by then, of course, this case had already had a lot of media attention. Now yeah. you can imagine. So it's correctional services releases suspect. And I mean, yeah. you know, the NPA spokesperson is going crazy criticizing, you know, correctional mm. services. And it really just was a massive blunder on their side. Absolutely. What are the repercussions for that kind of thing? What is the blowback on that? I'll you know, of course, they say we're going to have an investigation. We're going to charge people. I, I have no idea whether anybody ever suffered any consequences for that process. Okay. It's know. certainly another example of how efficient we are when it comes to traffic offenses. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and this is why also in the policy we later developed for serial cases, we say that any case related to this guy must be given over to the invest serial team, even if it's a shoplifting case. Yeah. That docket must be given to the serial team because we don't want this kind of scenario Intentionally or unintentionally to happen again. Yeah. Even who, if it's not part of the mandate. Who's of that deployed team. when, who's deployed to find him then? Right. So what happens is, uh, that's now the 1st of March, we realize yeah. this. Joyce starts again doing her magic, following up, speaking to people. And essentially they rearrest him in Peter Maritzburg on the four days, three days later on the 4th of March. Okay. After they managed to get information and he's caught. So he was away out from February till the 4th of March when so he's three, arrested. Okay. Thankfully, as well as we know, he didn't rape any further woman in that particular time. Yeah. Um, and we go back on trial. But as I said, he fired three lawyers, it ends up representing himself and doing a terrible job of it. Okay. Um, Ted Bundy'd it. Yeah, and he gets convicted. And of course, all these young ladies have to go through the trauma of being interrogated and cross-examined by this individual. He's got access to the case dockets because, you know, the lawyer normally gets all those things. Mm. He's a rude and abrasive to the judge, to the magistrate in the, in the, in the court, who was very tolerant, much to his credit. Okay. And eventually, out of the 122 counts, he was convicted on 112, which include 39 counts of rape. Yeah, there was sexual, obviously sexual assaults, kidnappings, normal assaults, assault GBHs, theft dockets in amongst those same cases. We charge in South Africa on every crime you commit against the victim, not just the most serious one. Okay. Um, and he was sentenced to 39 life sentences and 212 years. Wow. 
Yeah, probably. Not, I don't know if it's the, definitely one of the higher uh, life counts uh, sentences. What is your What are your feelings on sentencing when it comes to rape in South Africa? Um, I think the Minimum Sentence Act is pretty good. You know, it it says um, under certain circumstances you will get life sentences for a, a single rape, and that that'll be things like a child, uh, okay. a minor that you rape. Yeah. Um, uh, the other examples are if you rape a victim twice, automatic life sentence that you're going to get there for that one. Okay. Um, mentally handicapped, disabled individual, and there are other examples of which your starting point is you're getting life. Yeah. Um, it gets a bit difficult when they say things like your first conviction is 10 years, your second conviction is 15, as a recommendation. It's not to say they can't deviate mm. upwards. I think it's 10, then it's 15, then it's 20. Because often if you have a serial rapist, you're convicting him, he doesn't have previous convictions. He's getting all of his first convictions now on 10 cases. So some courts will say, well, then he must get 10 years, 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 because yeah. they're all first convictions. Other courts will say, no, sorry, maybe case one, 10, but by, you know, the second, third one, you, you're, you're stretching into the 20 years. Uh, in this case, and I think the magistrate was right, he whacked him on life straight out. And you can do that um, if you just, you know, if you are, yeah. if the prosecutor pushes it. But ultimately, when it comes to sexual offenses, in South Africa and, and around the continent, around the world. Ultimately, policing can only do so much. So much. Mm. But really, these are deep social issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if we don't address things like poverty, like the, the breaking up of the home, mm. um, you know, then talking patriarchy about some cultural things, you know, patriarchy, etc. Mm. Unless we address those things, all the police are really doing is trying to manage you know, trying their best to, mm. to deal with the worst of the bunch, right? And, and the problem also is if if a lot of your policemen support these value systems, not not rape, but, you know, uh, yeah. the patriarchy and, yeah. you know, why did you do that? Why didn't you just keep your mouth quiet? Why did you argue with your husband when he, you know, yeah, almost there, implying there, that you deserve Why did you wear the miniskirt through the taxi you rank? Know? And we unfortunately do see that in a lot of our cases yeah. um, across the spectrum. Not, it's not limited to a particular racial group. It's, and even females sometimes have those those um, those viewpoints. And that's uh, a, a challenge. Where, where do women, uh, women as offenders when it comes to rape in South Africa? We have had examples. Uh, it's not common. Um of course, how, how would they rape, you might ask. Again, as, as you read out the definition earlier, you could, they can use their finger inserted yeah. into vagina or anus, a pen, a bottle. Um, uh, you know, uh, they can yeah. force men to have sex with them against their will. We've had yeah. incidences of that taking place, okay. and that would also be regarded as rape. But very atypical. Yeah, very It's not a common, yeah. yeah. What we have here is a guy, a young, intelligent man, went to a good school, had every opportunity to potentially choose a good path. Clearly, there's a psychological issue. What is your final psychological evaluation of this guy? And what mm. is what what sticks with you when it comes to this case? Well, I think as you mentioned about the sadistic elements, and I think that resurfaced in the trial with how he treated the victims okay. when he had the opportunity representing himself. Um, so that, that surfaced again. Um, but yet, as I said, you've got this guy who's really was very smart, very eloquent, well educated in terms of South African standards and just like, you know, why did you have to do it? You could have so many different career paths. For me as a case, the challenge of the, the rush of how we caught him, 
you know, breaking the breaking the rules to get this done, yeah. running down to Komashu in Kaizen Hotel with the four of us to arrest him. You know, that was, of course, wonderful, exciting stuff. And, and I suppose the stuff you read up, you see on, on sort of TV and in movies. Yeah. And that's the stuff we were doing. Um, yeah. Great to work with Joyce, who then eventually came over to our unit full time and is still in our unit because we okay. realized the value of, of her and has been promoted since then to Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, and I think even Constable Simon, who was there, is now one of our team members in Johannesburg for our unit. Yeah. So just, again, and great to work with fantastic cops, fantastic prosecutors, the forensic side that that kind of carry their weight. Um, um, and yeah, it was a really exciting case because when it came together, it was literally a, a week or so and, you know, this guy was in the bag. And, yeah. and then the roller coaster ride of the trial with him escaping, of course, came later. So very memorable for, for a lot of those reasons. Um, and it seems that one of, the, one of the things to think about as well, I think, tech coming out of this discussion is A, how important it is to get a good detective yeah. on a case. A, a case can land on a detective's case that is blasé, that is uninterested, that is not engaged with their work. There's no chance of solving it, so I'm not going to put effort into it. And that case has very little chance of being mm. solved. But when you have a, a, a competent, passionate cop that is, mm. you know, really wants to, to dive into, mm. into their work, then mm. it's a really important yeah. factor. And I, you know, again, something we can maybe talk about in the, is how do we find our detectives? How do mm. we select detectives? How are they, how are they evaluated throughout their careers? Mm. And how do you ensure that consistently across the country, you have detectives who are, who are always engaged with their work mm. and always looking to go the extra mile and do what they mm. need to do, regardless of what it is to get a, to get a, a case solved. But it is worrying that if, if your docket lands on, a, on, a, on, the, on the desk of a detective that is not engaged with it, it's a problem. Mm. Um, secondly, we've definitely got to start thinking more profoundly about how we engage and talk to men about their emotional mm. and psychological issues mm. in South Africa and Africa and around the world. Yeah. Thank you, Gerard. Pleasure as always. Tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za every Thursday. The show premieres at 12 p.m. on Brand Live every single week. So be there for that. If you want to be the first to catch the show, please search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to our page. Go and check out some of the media that we post on the pages um, so that you can get a, a deeper sense of some of the things that we talk about on the show. And uh, please do follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa is our handle and join our Facebook group. Thank you for listening and pleasant dreams.